Romans 4. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 12, but really we're just going to focus on verses 9 to 12 uh, this morning. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to his church this morning. Romans 4. John, remember the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you're trying to find it. If you get to any of the kind of Ian's or the funny letters, I've gone a bit too far. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I want to ask two questions today. They're two questions you will almost certainly have never asked in your life. There are two questions that as you walk through the door this morning could not have concerned you less. Uh, Two questions very likely that would never have come to your mind over the rest of your life, however long you may live. Now, that might sound like the worst introduction to a sermon ever. Uh, But I couldn't think of another way of putting it. There are two questions that seem so abstract, so kind of ivory tower theological. The kind of questions that might interest a New Testament scholar or a theologian at Oxford, but but seem very distant from our lives today, living as Christians in the modern world. Or perhaps if you're not yet a Christian, you're looking into the Christian faith, uh, perhaps seem very distant from the kind of questions you have about why you should believe. And yet there are two questions that, that help us get to the heart, dig, to dig down into the riches of the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So without messing around any further, let me me give you the first question that I suspect no one has ever asked. And it's this. Do I have to be circumcised to be justified? Anyone want to claim they've, they've wrestled with that one? Do I have to be circumcised to be justified? That's our first question this morning. Children, we're looking at verses 9 and 10. It's a question Paul asks. Okay? They're not, these aren't questions I've come up with, standing my, my study at home with too much time on my hands. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Paul says, look, this blessing, circumcised or also uncircumcised, what blessing does he talk about? Well, you can see just above the little quote from the psalm that he's 
uh, just used in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It's the blessing of forgiveness. In fact, more than that, it's a blessing of being justified. Now, justified is a word we've used lots over the last few weeks. Well, I've been away for two weeks. I imagine Nick's used it a lot over the last two weeks. We used it a lot in the weeks before. Children, do you remember what it means to be justified? It means not, not just forgiven, although that's part of it, not just that our sins are wiped away, but that we're counted as righteous before God, declared as righteous before God. God treats us not just as if we hadn't sinned, but actually as if we'd done everything that he's asked us to do, as if we had a perfect record before him. We're not made like that. It's not that we actually have done all those things, but God counts us, treats us, declares it to be true. And at this stage in the letter, Paul says, look, okay, I hear you. It's as if someone in the congregation shouts out, hey, okay, Paul, uh, you've just been talking about Abraham, but, but Abraham was a Jew, remember? He was one of us. And Abraham was circumcised. Now, circumcision uh, was given to all Jewish boys on the eighth day. It was the cutting off of the bit of flesh at the end of the foreskin that marked them out as part of God's covenant people. And so Paul says, okay, let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Do you have to be circumcised to have this blessing of being justified, put right, declared right with God? And Paul asks a kind of counter question. Look at verse 10. How then was it counted to Abraham, to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Think about it, says Paul. Was Abraham right with God before or after he was circumcised? Now, again, that is probably not a question that has really been bugging you this week. But, but stick with Paul. Okay, stick with the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit ultimately who wrote this letter. There is a reason for what seem like these slightly difficult, obscure questions. So let's stick with the question. Was it before or after? Okay, so children, was Abraham circumcised first and then God said, now you're right with me? Or was he right with God first and then a bit later circumcised? Paul says that's really clear. First of all, Abraham believed and was right with God. And then later he was circumcised. Yeah, if we turn back to, to Genesis, we see in Genesis 15 uh, the quote that Paul has used in, in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is a quote from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. And the crucial thing is at that stage, Abraham hasn't yet been circumcised. In fact, it's in Genesis 17, which if you, you can sort of do the maths if you read through, is at least 14 or 15 years later, if not more. It is then in Genesis 17 that Abraham is circumcised for the first time. So for at least 14 years, Abraham lived as an uncircumcised believer. Okay, so what? Big application for the morning. You do not need to get circumcised. Brilliant. Okay, never crossed my mind. Thanks so much. This is just why we come to church, isn't it? These kind of random theological lessons. Most pointless sermon I've ever heard. Okay, hold on. Paul doesn't write pointless paragraphs. What, what is he getting at? There's two really good bits of news hidden in there. Two bits of great news. Remember what they're arguing. Remember what the kind of person coming back at Paul is saying. They're saying, yeah, okay, I hear what you say about faith, Paul. That's great. You've got to believe, but you also need circumcision. 
Two bits of good news Paul gives with this little argument about Abraham. The first is this. Circumcision doesn't qualify you to be justified. It's not a qualification you need first before you can be justified. Proof is, well, the proof is that Abraham was justified first. So circumcision can't be a qualification. Why is that good news for us? Because the whole point of the argument is there are no qualifications you need for being justified, put right with God. In other words, what gives you permission to, to believe the gospel? What, what qualifies you to be, to be justified, put right with God? What, what gives you permission to say, yes, I, I, Jonty, am allowed to rest on Jesus' righteousness? His righteousness can be mine, his record instead of my own. What allows you to say, yeah, for me, that can be true? We tend to think there must be a reason in me in some way. Well, well, I'm allowed to say that because I've turned from my sin and I really hate it. I'm allowed to say that because I've suffered for Jesus. I'm allowed to say that because, well, I've joined a church or served in the CU or I've... But Paul says, no, there are no qualifications, no prerequisites. It's not like trying to get into university where you've got to get to get into Leeds. What do you need to get into Leeds? I don't know, two C's and a D, is it nowadays? Kind of an anime, um, you know, Nottingham, straight A's. It's not like that. There's no prerequisites. John, think about two boats. One of the most common pictures of a Christian, common descriptions of a Christian in the New Testament is someone who's in Christ. Okay, that helps us understand why Jesus' righteous record is ours, because it's as if we're hidden here in him, like those Russian dolls kind of hidden inside. So imagine two boats. One of them is the Jesus boat and one of them is the not Jesus boat. Okay, Christ, not boat, uh, not Christ. The, the boat, the Jesus boat, the boat that is Christ is sailing towards heaven. And the other one is heading towards hell. And you want to get on the Christ boat. You want to get on the boat that is sailing towards heaven and eternal life. But, but standing at the gangplank, standing at the entrance to the boat... Okay, is the captain of the ship. And as you come up, you're wondering, what's he going to say? What what do you have to say to him to allow you to come on board? What do you have to bring? What do you have to pay? What is the cost? What do you need? Do you need to prove your sincerity? Do you need to prove that you really, really don't want to be on the other boat? That that you hate what those other people are doing? That that you hate everything you've done wrong in the past and, and you're really sincere? Do you have to prove anything to get on the boat? Paul says no. Entry to the boat is free. Welcome to the boat is free. It's not based on anything in you in any way. If you want to come on board, they will welcome you on board. It's Jesus' words uh, to us this morning. Come and welcome. You don't need to bring anything. John Newton, he wrote the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, and had a pretty incredible life story himself, uh, wrote this. A secret dependence upon our prayers, our tears, our resolutions, our repentance and endeavours prevents us from looking solely and simply to the Saviour so as to ground our whole hope for acceptance upon his obedience to death. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying even as Christians... 
we, we almost can't help ourselves thinking that in some way it must be our prayers, our tears over our sin, our resolution to try harder, our repentance. It's something in us that allows us to say, yes, we're justified, we're right with God. And Jesus says, no, we're meant to rest solely on the Saviour. There is no qualification, not circumcision or anything else. It is bizarrely one of the hardest things in the Christian life to learn to trust Christ alone for your salvation, his righteousness alone, to accept that it's nothing to do with what you do. It sounds so simple, but it is so hard in reality. Circumcision doesn't qualify you to be justified. Because nothing qualifies you to be justified. There are no qualifications needed. In that sense, it's very like, like getting into Leeds University, isn't it? Absolutely no qualifications needed. So, uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means that nothing can bar you from coming. Absolutely nothing at all. Nothing you've done, nothing you've felt, nothing you've failed to feel or do. You can just come. If you're totally new to the, to the Christian faith, uh, maybe you've got so many questions, so many things you don't understand, bits of the Bible you say, I've not read any of the Bible really. No idea what's going on in the Old Testament. I don't understand all these questions about science and, and, and I'm not allowed to come until I've got it all sorted in my mind. And, and God says, no, you come now. Come now. If, if you realise that you've not lived the life you should have lived, you've offended God and walked away from him, but that God is so full of love that he's willing to let you get on the ship that is Christ, then just come. Just come. Circumcision doesn't qualify you to be saved, to be justified. Secondly, the second bit of good news hidden in those verses is that circumcision doesn't complete your justification. Circumcision doesn't complete your justification. Okay, so someone, I see it's not a condition. I see anyone can come. There's nothing we need to bring. But, but, but once I am in, surely I need to sort of top up my justification. So yes, Abraham believed that he was right with God, but then he needed to get circumcised. And if he hadn't done, then, well, he wouldn't have been okay. I've been away for a couple of weeks in America, and if you've been on flights uh, overseas, you'll, you'll know that you get that talk at the beginning, don't you, from the, from the air hostesses. Uh, in the event of an emergency, the life rafts will come out, and don't wear high-heeled shoes, or you'll puncture them. A bit nerve-wracking, isn't it, these flimsy life rafts? Um, and you get to think about the, the, the life jacket. Put the life jacket on. Uh, before you get out and don't inflate it when you jump out of the airplane inflate it uh, and then uh, if you need to, to top it up blow into this little tube if, like, if I'm floating in the middle of the Atlantic I don't want to have to top up my life jacket I want a life jacket that stays up not one that needs topping up what, what about our status before God is it one that needs topping up is it one that we need to maintain is it one we need to add to be it with circumcision or anything else. Again, no, says Paul. What's the proof this time? The proof again is Abraham is justified without circumcision. Now that's a slightly different argument from before. I told you it's going to be quite sort of, it's it's a tight argument today from Paul. His argument this time isn't Abraham was saved, justified before he was circumcised. Okay, that was the argument a minute again. But also that Abraham was justified without circumcision. Have a look at verse 10. 
How then was it counted to him? Okay. How was Abraham counted as righteous? Not when. I think if I'd been writing the letter, I'd have said when. I assumed Paul had written when. In fact, when I sat down to, to write the sermon the first time, I went, oh yeah, when. But it's how. In other words, in what state was Abraham when he was justified, totally justified? He was uncircumcised. The whole thing was finished, done, settled years before Abraham was later circumcised. What's the point? Circumcision added nothing to Abraham's safety, to his righteousness. There's being declared right with God. And that is good news for us because justification, this status you're given when you trust Christ, is full and final. It can't be improved. Why? Because it's Jesus' life record that is credited to you. It just can't get any better. It also can't get worse because Jesus' life on earth is done and dusted, isn't it? Now, your life is going to go up and down. Your obedience is going to go up and down. It will vary, but your justification never will. My children, um, I know some of you quite like riddles. Here's a riddle for you. Make sure I read this right. (laughs) What gets smaller the more you add to it? What gets smaller the more you add to it? Any of you know? It's a hole. Look at that. The more you add, the, the smaller it gets. The more you add, the smaller it gets. It's like that with, with justification. If you try and add to it, it'll weaken. Now, it doesn't weaken in reality, because in reality, once you've trusted Christ, you're there, you're safe. But in terms of your kind of trust in it, it'll, it'll weaken it. It's, it's like going to a gallery, going to see an amazing painting, the Mona, Mona Lisa, and, and just thinking, well, what'll help is adding to it. Things always get better when you add. And so you sort of draw a little a few extra flowers sort of behind that. Or, or going to an amazing concert, listen to the like, Handel's Massar or something. And think, well, I'll just add my own bit. So when the comes to a rising climax, you get up at the end and do a little, little trumpet noise or something. I'm just adding. But it's not adding. By trying to add, you're taking away. You're making the picture worse. You're making the symphony worse. We've got to get out of the mindset that thinks that anything I do can solidify my status before God can make it better, can improve it, can make it more safe. Oh, this is good news. It is safe already. It's an old illustration you may have heard, of, have heard before, but uh, imagine Bob gets up on Monday morning and he, he's good as gold, reads his Bible, he prays, he goes to the office, he evangelises his neighbour, he goes out for lunch, does some street evangelism, helps the homeless at lunchtime, back, works really hard, heads home, says, honey, you take a rest, I'll cook dinner for the kids, put them to bed, heads out for Bible study in the evening, leads an incredible time of prayer, off to sleep. Next morning, Bob gets up, kicks the cat, um, shouts at the kids, chucks milk all over the floor, goes into the office, swears at his colleagues, doesn't do any work, goes out and gets hammered at lunch, on we go. Now, if Bob is someone who has trusted Christ, on which day is he more justified? Neither. He is equally justified both days. Should Bob do what he did on the, on the second day? No, of course not. Okay. His holiness, his life, his sort of performance as it were, is going well, pretty much downwards on the Tuesday. But the amazing news of the gospel is he is equally justified both days if he's trusted Christ. So let me just ask you a question. 
How might your life look different if you were confident, you were totally accepted by God, thanks to Jesus' record? How might your life look different? How might you feel different? If you were confident, you were totally accepted on the basis of Jesus' work, not your own. There's our first question. Didn't look promising, did it? Must I be circumcised in order to be justified? But I hope you can see there is gold in there for us. But there's a second question I want to look at uh, before we wrap up today. And it kind of grows out of the first. The second question, children, we're looking at verses 11 and 12 now. The second question is this. Why was Abraham circumcised? Maybe one or two people have asked this. Maybe it's occurred to you, even as we've, we've thought about circumcision this morning. Well, what was the point? What was it all about? It seems irrelevant, pointless. Verse 11. He, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. God gave him this sign and this seal of circumcision. What's a sign of? Is it a sign of being Jewish? No. Is it a sign just of the physical blessings promised to Abraham? You might know that God said to Abraham, you're going to have loads of descendants, as many as there are stars in the sky. You're going to have a land, the land of Israel. Is that what this is a sign of? No. Verse 11, what is it a sign of? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Circumcision was a physical sign, cut in the flesh, but of a spiritual reality. Righteousness that Abraham had by faith. We've said a few times that it's slightly confusing in English because righteousness and justification sound like totally different things. But in Greek, which the New Testament is written in, they're, they're the same word. It's a sign of Abraham's justification by faith. A physical sign of a spiritual reality. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Again, I'm not going to get too graphic about it, but, but, but circumcision is the cutting off of a kind of unclean part of the body and it being thrown away. Okay, a bit like baptism is a washing away of sins, for example. They are physical pictures of spiritual realities. It is a sign of whose work? Abraham's work. God, I've trusted you, so now I'm going to circumcise myself to show you. No. It's a sign of God's work. It is God who cuts away sin, takes away our sin. God who cleanses us. So it is not a sign of Abraham's faith. We know that in part because Abraham was told to circumcise his sons on the eighth day of their life. Okay, you have no idea what an eight-day-year-old Jewish boy thinks or believes. And yet he still had this sign of justification by faith. So it's not a sign of Abraham's faith or his baby's faith. It's a sign of the righteousness. It's a sign of God's work, not Abraham's. And therefore it's a sign to Abraham. He received the sign, verse 11. It's for him. Now the Bible never talks about us having a relationship with God. If you skim through your, if you've got one of those um, concordances, kind of how to look up words in the Bible kind of things at the back, you'll never find the word relationship in there. And it's not relationship with God. What you'll see hundreds and hundreds of times is the word covenant. 
Because the word covenant is the Bible's word for our relationship with God. And every time God enters into one of these relationships with people, he gives a, a sign, a covenant sign. Perhaps the most famous children is the rainbow, when God makes a covenant with Noah. Remember, he puts the bow in the sky, the, the, the rainbow in the sky. What is the point of the rainbow? It's not to say, well done, Noah, for trusting me and building an ark, is it? It's a promise from God to earth. I will never again wipe out humanity like that. And here is a sign, okay, a physical thing to, to go with my word, to back up my word, my promise. And each covenant in the Bible has these signs, these physical things. We're going to celebrate one of them later. Uh, the bread and the wine is one of the two new covenant signs. Baptism is the coming in sign, the starting off sign. And the Lord's Supper is the keeping going sign. Again, it's not a sign of us. Look, we believe you, Jesus, drinking. It's not primarily what it's a sign of. It's a sign of God's promise. He has given his son for you. He has shed his blood for you. And that's why in verse 11, circumcision is described not just as a sign, but a seal. It's as if Abraham has stamped on his head, you belong to me. Or cut into his skin a notch that says, you belong to me. Now, okay, none of us are going to get, get, get circumcised. I mean, med- by the way, medically, fine, not an issue. That's not what we're talking about. But, but sort of ceremonially. But, but in our era, in the New Covenant era, what is this, the sign that, that God gives us when we come into his people? Well, it's obviously baptism. Baptism, like circumcision, is a physical sign, water, of a spiritual reality. The cleansing. Of course, baptism doesn't save. We know that, don't we? It's not as if getting baptised actually washes your, your sin away. But that doesn't mean we should despise it or think of it as unnecessary. Sometimes, I think particularly evangelical Christians, we think, well, it doesn't save us. The thief on the cross wasn't baptised and he went to heaven, so it doesn't matter at all. It does matter. Just because something doesn't save you doesn't mean it doesn't matter. You don't need to believe much to be saved. We could rip out about 95% of the Bible if we got rid of everything that doesn't matter apart from getting you saved, as it were. It doesn't matter. It's just obviously nowhere near as important as the gospel. But if God says, I'm going to give you a sign... He must know what he's doing. It's not a mistake. We shouldn't despise it. But what do we learn from, from Romans 4? We learn that these signs of circumcision in our era of baptism, they're not a sign of our trust in him, but they're a, a picture from him to us, a sign to us of what he has done. And that way it's a bit like a wedding ring. If you wear a wedding ring, children, well, I know you won't wear one, but if you see people wearing wedding rings, what are they a sign of? Now, I don't actually wear a ring, so you know, breaking down, isn't it? But if I had a wedding ring on, what would it be a picture of? It wouldn't be a picture of my love for Georgina, my wife. That the ring on my finger is one that she gave me to say, I am committed to you. In other words, it's a sign not of my love for her, but hers, her commitment to me. And the one on her finger is the one that I gave her to say, I am committed to you. It's been like that with these signs. They are signs of God's commitment to us. What God has done for us, not what we have done for him. Now let me say a little aside at the moment. It's not a main point, but it, but it's, it is significant from Romans 4.11. Um, sometimes you will see at church that we baptise babies. 
the children of believers. We won't baptise any old baby, but the child of a believer. Why? That baby does not believe anything. Because <laughs> baptism and circumcision, these covenant signs, have always been given by God to his people, both for the believing adult and for their child. Now, typically what happens is some people come along and say, well, just a minute. You can't baptise the baby until you're sure that all those things that baptism pictures, washing away of sin and cleansing, you're not sure they're true of that baby. You can only know that when they profess faith. You can't give a physical sign of a spiritual reality to someone until you know they've got the spiritual reality. The problem with that argument is God has been doing that for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament. Circumcision is a physical sign of a spiritual reality, the cleansing from sin. And we know for sure that God said to Abraham, you and your children on the eighth day should be circumcised. So the very argument people use against baptism of children would also work against the circumcision of children. So many of the reformers, Calvin made that a big part of his argument for why you must baptise your children. Now, that is a secondary issue. Okay, You can be a member of Christ Church Central and totally agree with that. But, but again, just because something's secondary doesn't mean it's irrelevant. And that's why I wanted to mention it as we go through. But the crucial thing in terms of Paul's argument, he's not just diverted onto a kind of little section on circumcision and therefore baptism. The whole point of his argument is this. Your Abraham's circumcision, your baptism, is meant to point away from you. It's not meant to make you look at yourself. Have I really trusted? Have I? It's meant to look up to the one who washes you, who cleanses you, who cuts away your sin. Circumcision was a sign of God's work. It wasn't the work itself. So if you like to tie the two questions together. These covenant signs, baptism and circumcision, they're meant to point us back away from ourselves to see God does all the work in saving. That wouldn't work if the sign was either part of getting saved, you've got to be circumcised to be saved, you've got to be baptised to be saved, or added to your justification. You've got to add it in once you're there. The whole point, the gospel and the sign that represents the gospel, both of them preach the same message, word and sign. God alone saves. Look away from yourself. That is as true in the Old Testament as in the New. I heard a Jewish uh, guy on the, the TV this week. Uh, saying this, the most Jewish thing I can do is trust in Jesus. The Old Testament is just as much about faith in Jesus as the new. There is one gospel throughout the whole Bible. It's not Old Testament saved by trying your best, New Testament faith and grace. There's one message all the way through. The lights get turned on so we see it more clearly. But it's the same all the way through, always. That's why Paul goes back to Abraham and says, no, that this gospel I'm preaching, it's not mine. I've not come up with it. It's not a New Testament thing. It's there right in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. You want to talk about circumcision, says Paul. That's fine. It makes a very point I'm making. Circumcision was always meant to point you away from yourself. Uh, why the cutting off? of that particular bit of flesh, that particular bit of the body. Well, that bit of the body is all about descendants, isn't it? Okay, about the future generations. 
Abraham and every Jewish believer after him was being told there's going to have to be a cutting off. There's going to have to be bloodshed. And it's going to be to do with one of your descendants. And of course, one of Abraham's descendants did have his blood shed. Jesus himself was circumcised on the eighth day. He had no sin to cut off, and yet he was circumcised. Why? Because he was identifying with us. Right from his earliest days. In fact, Luke tells us that it was at Jesus' circumcision that he was given the name Jesus. (coughs) Jesus means saviour. As he was circumcised, he was given the name saviour. Here is the one who is going to come and ultimately be cut off on the cross for you. The bloodshed on his eighth day, a little foretaste, bookends, if you like. His whole life bookended in bloodshed, cut off in circumcision, but ultimately cut off in the crucifixion so that you might never be. God's word and the sign he's given you in baptism are meant to make you look to Christ. And no, you could not be more safe. You do not need to add. You do not need to find a qualification yourself in order to rest on that righteousness. So those of you who are full of fear, has God really accepted me? If you've trusted Christ, however weak your faith, you are safe. Those of you who feel the guilt of your sin, perhaps habitual sin, if you've looked to Christ, you are justified. And it's only as you realise the freedom of that gospel, the freedom of the love, the security, that actually the, the The desire to fight sin will grow. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that salvation is entirely out of our hands. We thank you that Jesus' righteousness is is credited to our account, even though our account was empty. And we pray you'd kill off in us this perverse desire to want to contribute, to think that it relies on us in some way, make us those who joyfully rest entirely on Jesus' life and death in our place. And might you therefore grow joy and peace in our hearts. We ask in his name. Amen.